Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today's episode is all about the transition from summer to school. It is always a hard transition. Transitions are generally difficult because they involve change. They involve uncertainty. They involve a loss of the experience of summer. They are totally confusing when it comes to what's going to happen in the fall because really for the last year and a half, there hasn't been a clear-cut answer about how school would be from one day to the next. So there's always a challenge with transitions. There's always a challenge from summer to school transitions. And this year is even more challenging. But we can do this and we can help our kids do this. So this episode, I've enlisted Dr. Helen Egger, who is a phenomenal child psychiatrist. She is a professor and former chair of the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the New York University's Langone Health and was the director of the Child Study Center. She now has a company called Little Otter that supports mental health online. And there'll be links in the show notes for a really cool toolkit to check in and see how your kids are doing during this transition and some activities that they can do if they're struggling. I'm still collecting questions and topics for the monthly bonus episode, and I love hearing from you. It's always uh, stressful going back to school and not all stress is bad, right? I mean, Going yeah. to kindergarten is a developmentally appropriate stressor, but it still is a challenge for the child and can be a challenge for parents. I think what's different about this year is that we all collectively have had this really difficult time with incredible uncertainty, with school for many kids being totally through Zoom, and we are not entering into a fall with things being back to quote unquote normal, right? We really are continuing to face the stresses that we have had over the last 18 months. So I think that the advice for parents is really pretty similar to the advice we would give every year. And the first thing I think we always start with for the parent really acknowledging your own feelings about this change and about separating from your child. I think that is where kids are going to pick up from their parents, how they are feeling. So if you're expressing a lot of anxiety and fear, your child will definitely pick up on that. You know, and I think whatever we're talking about back to school, we're talking about families, not about children. And so it's important for us to think as much about the child's caregivers as the child. I think the next thing is that children really thrive on certainty, knowing what's going to happen. And so that practice, rituals, and regularity are going to help a child so much. So what do I mean by that? Practice is if you possibly can before the start of school, particularly if your child is going to a new school, go visit the school, go play on the playground, 
if it's possible, meet your child's teacher. If there are kids that you know are going to be in your child's class, see if you can arrange some kind of play date or some way for your child to connect with those other kids. You know, that's such a wonderful suggestion that people are probably forgetting because everyone's gotten out of the habit. Right. Absolutely. And I think another way you can help kids is to be very clear about what is going to happen. Kids often, they don't have a great sense of time. And this is going to be a new kind of schedule, particularly if everyone has been at home and doing Zoom school. So I think it's really helpful to either draw or make a little schedule and a calendar. And it's like, okay, we're going to get up. We're going to have breakfast. We're going to get our book bag together. Daddy's going to drive you to school. We'll say goodbye. You'll be here. We'll pick you up at this time. And then even what you're going to do after school. And that can give children a real sense of what's the roadmap that is ahead. And that can really help a child's anxiety. So I think the other piece in thinking about the transition to school right now is to think of it within the context of children's mental health. And that is really what we focus on at Little Otter. And we are really concerned as children go back to school this year that they have all experienced and their families have experienced a lot of stress. For many families, this may mean having had loved ones who've been sick or have died. And this has had a huge impact on kids' mental health. Just to say, you know, some numbers around this, we've seen a rise in anxiety and depression in kids. And we have seen a 30% increase in mental health emergency room visits for children across the country. So even before the pandemic, we had a mental health crisis with kids having mental health needs that weren't being met. And that has only gotten more challenging this year. And I really have a lot of compassion, but also concern, not just about parents and kids, but what teachers are going to be dealing with and facing at the start of the school year. So as we're thinking about, which I think is weighing heavily on parents also, like how it has this impacted our children's mental health and how will this transition back to school support their mental health? I think a lot of parents are, I, I know I'm incredibly grateful to be able to send my kids back to school um, and really clinging to that. So What happens for parents who have kids who are not interested in going back to school or who have really become too anxious to go back to school? What are some ways to give them a little bit of extra support to get them through the door? Well, I think it's a really important point that children and parents are going to feel differently about going back to school. So, there, I mean, I think most parents are eager to get their kids back to school so that we can have some more regularity in all of our lives. But you're pointing out that there are a group of kids who actually, either because they had social anxiety or not positive experiences at school, have really liked being able to do Zoom school. And then their children that through the uncertainty and anxiety of this time have developed some worries, anxieties, even specifically separation anxiety that's going to make the start of the new year pretty challenging. So here are some tips about how to help your anxious child with, in this case, the transition to school, but it could be other transitions. And I'm going to say the same thing I said before, that It starts with parents, in my view, so that a parent's level of anxiety has such a huge impact on a child's level of anxiety. And that is a really challenging sort of feedback loop because you see your child being anxious and afraid. That can make you feel anxious and afraid. And we want to protect our children 
from having those feelings. And then we try to be overprotective and try to make that anxiety go away. And really, mm-hmm. the truth is our, our job is not to make our child never feel anxious. <laughs> it's to help your child have skills to be able to manage their anxiety. And I know, you know, you know this as well as I do, that if you help your child avoid anxiety, it actually makes the anxiety worse. I want to really drill that home because I think we say that a lot. And sometimes when you think it's getting through, you still see it's so hard, especially if you bend anxious, there's one thing to know that there's one thing to believe that. So is there a way, is there an exercise, is there something that parents can say to themselves to remind themselves of this? Because it really is watering this plant of anxiety Mm -hmm. and you don't want to, but you can't, it's so hard in the heat of the moment for an anxious person to not go back to, I've heard many times, like, why would I want my child to go through that? I remember what that was like to feel that way. And so I would love for you to give some tools for those parents who are going through that so they can know the information and actually act on it in a different way. Yeah. I I love what you're saying about how parents experience their anxiety. And I can speak to this as having been an anxious child and having anxious children myself, mm-hmm. I have found this really, really challenging, not just because I don't know how to manage it in the moment or my own anxiety is making it hard to think about how to do things, but that experience of thinking back and experiencing in your own childhood how much you suffered and then not wanting your child to suffer. And so I think that is completely understandable. And as I said, I've experienced it myself. But in a way, I think we have to think of anxiety as giving us a false message, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? Because I mean, and that's the key of, I mean, it's if you are you know, in prehistoric times and you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, it's good to be anxious at that moment, right? right? (laughs) And it's good to run away. So we have fear and anxiety because they can be useful to signal when there's danger. The issue with anxiety that kind of pervades our daily life is that we're having an emotional experience that's like we have a saber-toothed tiger bearing down on us, but we don't, right? Going to school is a important part of being able to become an independent child who is learning and fully engaged. So while it can feel, and we can experience it in that really overwhelming, anxious way, we have to use the thinking part of our brain I mean, it's really helpful, I think, to realize that we actually have two parts of our brain. Uh We have the emotional part of the brain that is like, danger, danger, I'm scared, run. And then we have the thinking part of our brain that says, wait, 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 you're not in danger. This is feeling hard. Let's think about how we're, yeah, it's no tiger. How are we going to manage that? And I think when you know, you asked the question about how we can advise anxious parents and what are the tools they can use. I think it's really to be able to connect to that thinking part of your brain and not be overwhelmed by the emotion part of your brain. And so simple things, and this is helpful for children as well, of just stopping and doing breathing Mm-hmm. To be able I just to center yourself. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you can take, you know, three deep breaths and in and out and really feel your body letting go of that anxiety. We feel anxiety, not just in our heads. We feel it in our bodies. You know, we, our breathing gets shallow. Our heart may beat fast. We may sweat. So that one of the good things when you're trying to learn ways to reduce anxiety, you can tell if it's working because your body feels different. 
Mm-hmm. And the important thing is we can teach these skills to our children as well. We can teach them ways that when they are feeling this anxiety, they can stop and do things that are going to help make it go down. And that is things like breathing and just letting your body relax. But it's also using the thinking part of your brain to be able to, in some ways, boss back the anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. The thinking part of the brain needs to say, hey, wait a second here. I can do this. This is okay. I've done this before and I can do it right now. And so parents, I think, have to sort of deal with their own anxiety and if, if you need to get some therapy and help with that, I really encourage that because we have to be able to give our children the message that they can do it. That yes, life involves worries and new things that are hard, but they can do it and we're going to be there to help them to cope, not to be there to protect them from ever having any negative emotions. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the key is that there's no recommendation to just disregard the anxiety and blow Mm -hmm. it off. It's just, hey, we're here for this. And 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 also you can do this. Absolutely. And and you made an important point that I, I don't think I sort of emphasized, which is there are no bad feelings. So you don't want to give your child the, the, idea that, oh, these are, you shouldn't feel afraid. Right. You You should be excited. You should be excited. You shouldn't feel, you know, we have a joke in our family, which is, you know, don't tell me how to feel when someone says something. It's like, so it's really important to support our children by being open to talking about the worries, to empathize. You know, I think it can be helpful to say, yeah, I remember when I started third grade, that I was feeling really worried and didn't know if I was going to make any friends. So I can really understand how hard that must be. But that's different than saying, okay, let's just not go to school. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Here, I'll I'll fix all of this. You don't have to experience it. Exactly. So there's no right way for a child to feel entering this big transition. And so kids are going to go through a range of feelings and some may feel among other things, anxious, they also can learn that there, you can be both, you know, anxious and excited or that, you know, Mm -hmm. they're not tied to one thing. What's some language to spark the conversation without emphasizing it so much that now we're in a loop of like, you know, like in my household, we are definitely, if anything, we talk too much about everything Mm -hmm. and we have to just like feel things in our bodies and be quiet. Um, we're th- three girls in the house. It's <laughs> a lot of talking, <laughs> but I wonder if we could go through some concrete conversation openers of curiosity about helping kids tap into what their feelings are so they can name them, especially the younger ones, and also what those mean. And for some people, this will not even matter because everybody's just going along and the transition isn't a big thing. But for a lot of people, for most of us, transitions in general, even just a schedule change is, yeah. a, is, is a thing to acknowledge. So I guess what's some language that can prompt, you know, the I wonder or I'm curious about these feelings? I would say, number one, if your child shares a feeling with you, be sure not to close that down and to sort of talk about that in a curious, supportive way. I think often with kids, the best way to sort of bring it up is to read books together. I mean, picture books can be a wonderful way because it's not so direct, right? It's um, Mm -hmm. It can be this character who's feeling worried and anxious, and that can be a way to talk. How do you think, you know, Joey in the book is feeling. Why do you think he feels that way? So it gives a tiny bit of distance. So Mm -hmm. I think books are wonderful. I think also drawing with children can be really helpful. And even if you say, hey, let's, you know, you're doing some kind of drawing and saying, let's draw about going back to school or something like that. And you may be able to elicit 
and get some information about how your child is feeling that way. And similarly with younger children, they really often express their feelings through their play, both through what kind of stories they're telling in their play and sort of what the feelings they're expressing in their play. So so I would say it's just as important for parents, I call it sort of being a detective, an emotion uh-huh. detective, to really just be open to all the different clues that you're getting. Because I think kids often shut down if you sort of plop down next to them and say, so tell me, how you feeling about school? Exactly. <laughs> and now a word from my sponsors. By now, you all know that I love my Gemma's shampoo and conditioner. And now they have this new product that I am obsessed with. So for those of you who don't know, whether you are postpartum, going gray, or just trying to find some volume, Gemma's will match you with your personalized hair care solution. But what I did not tell you about before was their scalp balancing bar. And let me tell you, this product I didn't know I ever needed is now a must need. So I use a lot of dry shampoo. I don't wash my hair every day, which is why Gemist is great because they send you the amount you need based on how often you wash your hair. And this scalp balancing bar clears out all the buildup that is left on your scalp, which kind of sounds gross, <laughs> but then you just feel so refreshed. And now I have my Gemma shampoo and my conditioner And I also get a scalp balancing bar and it is such a game changer. And it even contains sugar, which provides natural physical exfoliation and ginger oil, which contains anti-inflammatory is rich in minerals and helps to stimulate the scalp. Eucalyptus oil, tea tree oil. Is it magic? No, it is science. And you can also save money by subscribing. Plus Gemist is women-owned. It is a subscription service, which is a time and money-saving experience because you can save 20% off on every order with their smart subscribe and get free shipping. And it's totally based on hair length and washing frequency so that your subscription is personalized, flexible, and easy to skip. And it smells delicious. So if you're ready to have the best hair ever, try Gemist. Plus, right now, my listeners can give Gemist a try and get 20% off their shampoo and conditioner and scalp balancing bar with a Gemist smart subscription. Smart subscribers already save 20% on each order. So this is an amazing deal. And with free two-day shipping, you can have it by Monday. Just visit Gemist.com to get your personalized recommendation and enter Raising Good Humans 20, the number 220, a checkout for 20% off your subscription and free two-day shipping. That's gemist.com, G-E-M-M-I-S-T.com and enter the code RaisingGoodHumans20 at checkout to get the best hair ever. This episode is brought to you in part by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. This has everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food. Public Goods is your new everything store, and it is thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. It also just looks phenomenal. I love having this one streamlined look for soaps and laundry and dog food and coffee. Like, honestly, it's just such a cool website with such great products. I was thrilled when they asked to sponsor this podcast. So rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, public goods members can buy all their premium essentials in one place with one beautifully streamlined aesthetic. Public goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products. I just recently moved And I wanted all of, you know, I just wanted everything to be so streamlined. And I love the soaps. Knowing that they are ethically sourced and obsessively developed so that each of the products are free of unhealthy ingredients and harmful additives that are still common on drug and grocery store shelves is just a wonderful feeling. And they're committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans and animals and the environment. 
And knowing what's in your products and where they come from is so important because those small changes in the way we shop can make a big impact on not only our personal health, but the world at large. And they use a membership model to keep costs low and pass on even more savings to their customers. And you can make your first purchase with no obligation. They also plant one tree for every order placed and incorporate sustainability into every part of the company. So join hundreds of thousands of others who have switched to their new everything store. And I worked out an awesome deal just for my listeners. You can receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. They're so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. So you have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash humans or use the code humans at checkout. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash humans to receive $15 off your first order. We've all heard about blue light coming from our screens and how it's bad for our health and sleep. I mean, we talk about it in this episode and we're all so worried about our kids getting a good night's sleep that we look for anything that will protect their health. So in my search for a simple solution, I found this amazing product called iJust Blue Light Blocking Screen Protector. That is a very long name for a brand, so we're just going to call it iJust, that actually blocks harmful blue light at the source and help kids get a good night's sleep. So kids today of all ages, from kindergarten through college, are constantly getting a jolt of blue light from their devices. And children's eyes are particularly at risk from blue light overexposure because they're not fully developed which causes increased sensitivity to the effects of blue light. iJust blue light blocking technology is embedded directly into the screen and is super easy to apply. You won't even know it's there, but you will know it's working. Now, you should not have a screen in front of your eyes or your children's eyes before bed. That is just like having a shot of espresso before bed. But you do need to, even before that, block the blue light because that's never good for your eyes. So this is a really easy solution. And when you have teenagers, for example, sometimes they are looking at that screen way longer and later than you anticipated. And as much as I'm a proponent of grabbing those screens at a certain time, you know, things happen. And we do know from a study by Common Sense Media that 40% of teenagers use mobile devices within five minutes of going to sleep. And 36% of teens woke up to check their devices at least once during the night. So first line of defense is take your devices out of their rooms and have a space to keep everybody's devices at night because it's not good for any of us. And also get a blue light screen from iJust. So now's the time to help your kids have healthier tech and block harmful blue light all day. Visit iJust.com for more information. That's E-Y-E-J-U-S-T dot com. iJust is even offering a special code to my listeners. So use the code HUMANS, H-U-M-A-N-S, and you'll get 20% off your first order. There is no need for blue light to be messing with anybody's system. So go to iJust.com and enter the code HUMANS. Hey girl, hey, welcome to Taste of Taylor, my weekly podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Strecker. You might know me from Sirius XM Radio. I mean, I was there for like 12 years after all. But then Howard Stern allegedly got jealous of me, so I had to leave. I was actually able to pull myself up by the bootstraps and start my own podcast, Taste of Taylor, which is now officially with Dear Media. I'm so excited to say that. Ha! So I promise you in this podcast, you're going to either learn about something, you're going to be inspired by someone that's like always coming from a perspective of like humor, then this is the place for you. I hope you enjoy this little snack. So we're emotion detectives and there are just ways that aren't so in your face. Tell me how you're feeling about school that you can pick up on things. And what about for the school age kids? Yeah, I think then... It's really being open to different conversations. I think finding the right moment, I think, at least in my family, you know, when you tuck your child in for bed, maybe with a, you know, your child who's six to 12, they'll still, you know, you still might sit down and talk to them before they go to sleep. And that can sometimes be a good time to talk about things. 
I think also doing things like taking a walk with your child. I guess what I'm saying is I don't think there are any perfect words, but I think what's important is to be talking about these things with your child when you're both feeling safe and comfortable and it's enjoyable. You know, I, I, it needs to feel like I'm, I'm here for you. I'm interested in you. And that's the other thing I think people are like, how do I talk about it? Kids and human beings love to connect with other people. They love to feel like someone cares about them and what they're feeling. So I don't think there are right or wrong words. I think it's really about being receptive, being connected, being curious, and caring about what you're going to learn. I think that curiosity is so important because I, I think we all can feel that. And sometimes if we have an agenda going into a conversation or connecting, that maybe is why you get kids that are closing up, but maybe real curiosity, just getting to know another person is more powerful. I think with the curiosity, there are ways to ask questions that aren't like, how are you feeling? Like, I was wondering Mm -hmm. about how you were feeling. I noticed that you got sort of quiet when we went to the open house. I was curious about what you were thinking or feeling Mm -hmm. at that moment. So I think, again, as you're saying, taking that more curious wondering rather than um, sort of laser focused getting to a specific point. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in terms of rituals, what are some suggestions for folks who have trouble with routines and rituals, but are trying to get back on track? A hundred percent. So I think first of all, to think about where, where are the areas in your family life that you can create some regularity And the reason that rituals and regularity are important is, one, it gives everyone in the family a sense of understanding what's happening and what's Mm -hmm. coming. It's a way to reduce uncertainty. And you're really focusing on family rituals that enhance your relationships with each other. So the points I would think of is, one, the morning what you're going to be doing at home in the morning before the school bus or before you take your kid to school. Number two, how can you create some sort of special way when you say goodbye to each other? Mm -hmm. So that can be, you know, like a see you later alligator or a special way that you give each other three quick hugs and then say, you know, love ya. But Mm -hmm. in a way, doing it the same way. And that's something secret kind of for your family. Something between you. Yeah. We used to always, this is not secret because it's based off of a a book, but that book, The Kissing Hand, we used to do kissing hands where I would kiss the palm. This doesn't sound very COVID friendly, but the palm of my daughter's hands and they would kiss mine and we would put our hands on our cheeks and say, mommy loves me or they're, you know, Vivian loves me or Penelope loves me or whatever. And they would go off and, and I always said, you can't wash it off because I didn't want them to then not wash their hands <laughs> throughout the day. But um, it became such a, such a little secret family ritual, even though, again, it's just pulled from a very lovely book on school separation. And it lasted up until, you know, it goes, it can, it can last a long time just having this little thing that's just between you guys and your family. And I I remember there was a preschool teacher who did this incredible thing. This was so many years ago, but she had a little crystal. I don't know that it was a real crystal, but she would have the kids blow a kiss through the crystal to the parents. And Mm. it was this, every time they would go into the building and then look out the window and blow. Now that's obviously very luxurious. You have to have the window on the first floor and everything has to be (laughs) working just so. But I just remember those were such meaningful moments and the repetition of them, that certainty that it gave the kids was so nice and the connection of the ritual. And then separately, what what you were saying about regularity, the, the kinds of what are we doing 
with our day, how's it going to look each day, especially coming off of summer that might've been more of a free for all or bedtime got a little wonky or later, there was an exception kind of every day about what was going on. So now going from kind of jumping here from ritual now to the regularity and, and how can we shift from the exceptions being every day of summer to, Mm -hmm. okay, now we kind of have to get down to a more routine oriented schedule, which will of course help with this big transition. And it helps us because I think a lot of parents get really tired by the end of summer. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And how did, how did, how did ease into, Hey, by the way, there's some new expectations of you. Absolutely. And, and I think this relates to a few things. One, I want to start by saying every parent should give themselves an incredible pass for whatever their family patterns are right now. (laughs) One, because of the summer and two, because of the pandemic and all the, you know, and this has been a big issue that's come up in terms of kids screen time. I think Mm -hmm. is is an example of that is, you know, kids, I think many children have had much higher rates of screen time than they did before the pandemic beyond Zoom school. I mean, separating that out, because if you've got a conference call, what are you going to do? And you don't have a babysitter. Yeah. And you need, I was doing it. I was allowing a lot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think we start with, with just, if you're feeling guilt about it, just forgive yourself and just go forward. I think that's super important for parents to hear. And your kids are doing fine and they will be fine. So, so Mm -hmm. I'd start right there. Let's just, you know, it's a new day, but we're going to just go forward. I think the second thing is that we want to make these transitions and these um, regularities in our home positive right? So I'll take the example of sleep, right? Because it's so important. One of my top recommendations for parents with their kids going back to school is make sure your child is getting enough sleep because that has such a big impact on their ability to learn, to regulate their emotions, etc. And if you go to the Academy of Pediatrics website, they actually show how much sleep children should be getting at different ages. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really actually important to know as parents. But then if you haven't had a regular bedtime or ritual, this is the time to turn it into something positive, right? Because if the message to your family is, okay, back to school, now we're getting down to brass tacks and we've got new expectations for everyone, that is going to feel kind of awful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and children may resist that, right? So I think you need to turn it into something positive. And just like with the saying goodbye uh, rituals, it's so important to have a bedtime plan and rituals. And all of these things are about really supporting your children in being able to make transitions, right? So if you think about sleep as a transition from our busy days to being asleep, you don't just turn that on and off with a switch. So when you're thinking about making a bedtime ritual, you're really thinking about how do we sort of move toward this other quiet sort of state of being asleep. So that means, number one, warning your kids ahead of time, like, okay, we're going to be turning the TV off or whatever they're doing in 10 minutes to go brush our teeth and, you know, or five minutes or whatever. So you're not just jumping in saying, okay, time for bed. You give them a little bit of time to anticipate and then do things in the same order. We brush our teeth. We go get in our pajamas. We get into bed. We read a story. We bring the special stuffed animals who sleep with you in the bed and really try to do that in the same way. And it sounds obviously this is something we do with little kids, 
But I really think that elementary age kids, it's a different bedtime ritual, but it's just as important to have a way to help them. And think of it as transition. How do we transition from the day and, and the, you know, activity and engagement of the day to being able to quiet our bodies, quiet our minds, and to be able to go to sleep. And sleep is often the thing that we are forgetting about when all this other stuff is going on. And it's the thing that will reduce anxiety, reduce the behavior outburst, reduce everything. So it's a good one to cling to. It's a good reminder that now's the time if we've left. Well, also kids could sleep later if they even do sleep later when they go to bed later, which is not usually typical for younger children. Absolutely. And and I think this folds back to the screen time question. I think a very critical part of helping your children transition to sleep is to have at least half an hour, ideally an hour where they haven't had any interaction with the screen before going to sleep. Because screens, the light of the screen is actually activating and interferes with going to sleep. And it and right. it's stimulating. And so, you know, I really strongly think that there shouldn't be phones in the room. There shouldn't be TVs in the room. And that includes bringing your own phone. In I know. It's putting my, your kid to bed. Yeah, um, it's, it's, that's like one of the hardest things, but it's like having some, you know, giving a shot of espresso to everybody. Right. But I think there are things I, I actually, I'm going to speak personally here, but I love audiobooks mm-hmm. and actually listen to audiobooks to help me go to sleep. Me too. And they're really wonderful audio products for kids, actually, either bedtime stories or sort of mindfulness relaxation or even the sound of rain in the forest or the ocean. So I don't think it's, you know, there there can be really good ways to use sort of sound audio to be able to help a child relax and go to sleep. But it's really the looking at the screen part that is really important to to limit before bedtime. Yeah, that is such a tough one because those, you know, yeah, we listen to the Calm app a lot. We used to, it's a little, my kids are a little bit older and have different stuff going on, but that was always hard. Like how do you you turn off the blue light, cover up the screen, but have the audio. And there are products that make that more easy, but it's a great reminder. So how do parents know when to worry? When is the transition to school adjustment more than typical? Absolutely. So I want to start by saying that every parent should expect some kind of turmoil and disruption at the beginning of school, even for kids who are excited and exuberant about being at school. We commonly see kids regress and um, when they're facing stress. And so what regressing means is that skills like sleeping through the night, getting dressed to themselves, following directions, not having temper tantrums, that those skills get sort of tested in this new, um, with the transition. So you so often will see kids who behave wonderfully at school all day. And then when they come home, they just fall apart. You know, they have tantrums, they're tears. And I think this is something that every parent should expect and to realize that it takes so much energy for children to hold it together at school and daycare. These are are challenging situations. They're interacting with peers, they're learning, they're following directions. And so when they get home, they can let that tension go because they feel safe, because they're in a place where they can just not have to be on their guard so much. Mm. So that kind of sort of early disruption is to be expected. And for most kids, they will get comfortable and will bounce back to where they started. So then that gets to the question of, well, when do you worry? When is it more than beginning of school jitters? And the key thing is to realize that 
mental health challenges are really dysregulation of emotions and behaviors, right? And as we talked about earlier, managing our feelings and behavior is one of the big developmental tasks of growing up, right? So when we see changes in our kids' ability to manage their emotions or behavior, we need to pay attention. And it's really when these changes are lasting for more than two weeks that they're really persisting, that they're happening most of the time, they happen you know, when the child is home and outside, that then you really want to pay attention. So you're looking at changes in emotion, so increase of fear or worry, anxiety, increased sadness or irritability, changing in the child's eating or appetite, changes in sleep. And so what we're looking at with sleep are kids who who before were able to go to sleep without problems, kids who have trouble falling asleep, kids who wake up in the middle of the night and can't go back to sleep, or kids who when they wake up in the morning, and this isn't their normal temperament, are really grumpy and, you know, not excited about getting up. Key being, this isn't their normal temperament. That's the key thing. Yeah, kids are different, right? I mean, there are certain kids who are never going to be cheerful in the morning. (laughs) I have one. Yeah, and that just is the way they are. And that's fine, right? There's a lot of variety in how, just in the way there can be kids who are, super excited about going back to school and seeing their friends and then other children who are feeling anxious and tentative about that. So there's certainly kids have personalities, but it's really when we're seeing this change. The other thing is to really pay attention to what the things your child is saying, both in sort of how they're describing things, but also in their play. So in thinking about depression, for example, kids will start saying things like, I'm a bad person. I'm so stupid. I'm ugly. I hate myself. And I think, again, there's an instinct as a parent to say, oh, no, you're not. You're beautiful. Mm -hmm. Or no, everyone likes you. I think that's really missing the mark at that moment. Because really, your child is telling you something about how they're feeling inside and that we need to pay attention to that. Another thing you can see is that kids can express a lot of guilt or worry about things. So when the last thing, and this is relevant to school, is kids can start having a lot of tummy aches or headaches Mm -hmm. or other aches and pains. So sometimes kids express mental health challenges in how they're feeling in their body and express it with these stomach aches, headaches, or other aches and pains. Lastly, when you're asking this question, when should I worry, you want to look at how your kid is is doing, how your kid is functioning at school or at home or in the family. You know, if your kid's challenges are impacting them in an adverse way, like the teacher is calling you and saying that there are problems at school, or if there's just sort of constant tension and fighting and in your home because of some issues, that is one of the most important indicators that it could be helpful to get an evaluation and get some help because. When kids are having emotional or behavioral challenges that are impacting their development, then we worry about, you know, what the long-term impact of that will be. I have an example of thinking about ADHD in, uh-huh. in kids, and which actually can be diagnosed in early childhood, is that the typical child who's diagnosed with ADHD is a nine-year-old boy who, when the parents describe them, say, yeah, my child has been hyperactive and had difficulty with attention since, you know, he was a baby. And that that nine-year-old little boy is already seen as a problem by the teacher, has had difficulty developing relationships, and 
is already having a lot of conflict with his parents and with siblings. And so that always makes me so sad when I think about that, because here's an example of a child who has a treatable mental health challenge that didn't get care and therefore really suffered and really had his experience and his relationships really impacted by not being helped. So you just brought up three things that I want to really quickly follow up on, and then we'll have more conversations. Following up on what you just said about the earlier care that could have really helped out in supporting this child, that I want to just emphasize that because it can be so scary to think, I wonder if there's something going on. And sometimes our instinct is to say, well, I don't want to check that out because I'm going to somehow create a, a version of the truth that isn't there, or I'm going to label, or I'm going to in some way make my child feel less than because I'm testing them. So I wanted you to speak to that. And, and then I'll tell you the next thing. <laughs> yeah. I think that the importance of early identification and early intervention when kids are having mental health challenges just cannot be emphasized enough. So the first thing I'll say to understand this is 75% of adult mental health disorders start before the age of 14. So that is really when, when you're thinking about getting help for your child, you're thinking about them at the moment and they're suffering and you want to help them, but also to realize that for so many people, these challenges can start early and that if you don't get help, they can really have a huge impact on you as you grow up as a child, as a teenager, but then as an adult. And if you do get help, what's the positive trajectory there? Yeah, so that's the really important thing is, number one, mental health challenges, and there we're thinking about emotional challenges like anxiety and depression, or behavioral challenges, or like disruptive behavior, and what we call neurodevelopmental challenges, disorders like, um, I mean, autism is spectrum disorder is an example, but we think of ADHD as a developmental challenge also, is number one, these are common, okay? These are not rare. These are common. About 20% of children have some kind of impairing mental health challenge, number one. Number two, these are treatable. We have great ways to help kids and families. And so it's not like, well, yeah, you should worry. So just sit around and worry and feel sad. No, it's like, wow, we can identify this early and there are great ways that we can help take anxiety, help your child with you learn skills to be able to manage anxiety, to boss back that anxiety and to feel so much happier and so much more able to explore and engage with life. So I'm, I'm just, I'm so glad you addressed that because that's just one of those things that putting our head in the sand or hoping that it's not there is not supportive and the potential benefits are so enormous of looking closely at our children and, and figuring out if they do really need some kind of extra support. So I want to go back to something that you said, um, you were giving an example of a child who is using really negative language, like saying they hate themselves or everybody hates them or they don't have any friends or I can't remember the exact examples. But I wanted to just jump back to that. If if that's leading up to this transition to starting school, rather than just saying, oh, that's not true, which is our instinct or you're so, I think you gave the example of saying like, if they say they're ugly, you say you're so beautiful. You mentioned, you know, using that as information to get to know where your child is and what they're thinking about. What is a, a good, I don't know if good's the word, but what's a response that you can give that isn't just minimizing that experience that they're having or the feeling they're having and denying it, but isn't feeding it? So the first thing I, I would say is um, that it's tremendously important to listen. So part of it is not 
what you're going to say or do, yes. but it's being able to listen and really being able to tolerate oh, yes. that your child is telling you something that's really painful. We, we don't just want to reassure our child. We want to reassure ourselves, yes. right? So true. And so I think I would say the first thing is to listen and to not jump in to try to solve, right? That I think is, is really, really important. At that moment, your child is not really looking for the thinking part of the brain that is to solve it. They may be, you can help them learn those skills later, but at that moment, it's really to listen, to be non-judgmental, to be open. And you want your child to know that you care, that you take their feelings seriously, and that you are there to help them. And that's, that's not always easy to do. It's a great way to frame it though, and to, to really think about it and how that's making us feel when those, when our kids say that learning to tolerate that is a big one. Okay. Last question. I'm throwing big questions at you that could be whole episodes on their own, but, um, for preparing for the separation of school, particularly with younger kids, more than the older kids, at what point is it a worry to address when there's difficulty at that separation? Probably I'm thinking of preschool. And at what point can we expect like, yeah, this feels like an appropriate separation response and here are some ways to manage it. Yeah, I think the importance in thinking about when is the separation just part of normal child's experience of making the transition to when is it something we should worry about is number one is how long the separation distress is lasting. So again, we would expect children, some children who have sort of an anxious temperament to have a little bit of trouble separating at the beginning of school. And and what's, again, so important is to have, to be sort of practical and clear with your child in a loving way, but okay, I'm saying goodbye now. Have your special way of saying goodbye with kisses or other kinds of ways that you say goodbye. And then you need to go. Then you need (laughs) to go. And you need to, if you like look back with anxiety or run back, you will be giving your child the message. Yeah, I'm really worried about leaving you right now. I'm really worried that you aren't safe. I'm worried that you can't do this. And that is not the message you want to be giving your child. The second thing is in you're trying to understand this, talk to the teacher about how things are going at school. Because when kids are having sort of typical separation challenges, they may get upset when their parent leaves and then just stroll into preschool or (laughs) into kindergarten and have a fantastic day and be happy. And so that is a, you know, really important sign that your child is doing okay. So it's really if these separation anxieties are continuing, I'd say, beyond two weeks or a month, if they're not decreasing in their sort of intensity, if they're sort of at high pitch at, you know, every time you do the drop off. Number three, if you're hearing from the teacher that your child is very anxious, withdrawn, not engaging in school, um, that would be a reason to worry. And then there are other signs of separation anxiety, which is there's an actual disorder called separation anxiety disorder that is very treatable. And what you see is a child might have difficulty separating with going to school and you'll see other separation challenges at home. So I call it the child being your little shadow. It's a child who will Mm -hmm. follow (laughs) Mom, everywhere around the house, will sit outside the bathroom. Mm. When you go to the bathroom, we'll walk out with you to take the garbage out. We'll not be able to be in a room alone. That would be one sign. 
You also can have kids who have a lot of trouble separating at bedtime and make it very difficult to be able to say goodnight and stay in their own bed. Sometimes kids with separation anxiety get up in the night to check that everybody in the family is okay. So that's different than waking up and just being awake. That's like, and what parents will experience is that they'll sort of wake up and there their kid will be at the side of the bed, like looking at them, which can feel a little so, creepy. So creepy. <laughs> but, but that is, and then kids can have a lot of worries about when are you leaving? What's going to happen? Like a lot of anticipatory anxiety about separation. And it gets back to what we talked about earlier is that it's so common for families that I work with to have a child with separation anxiety where the family has completely changed everything in the family to keep that child from experiencing the separation anxiety. So if they're preschoolers, they don't go to school. They never stay with a babysitter. They sleep in the parent's bed. And maybe dad's sleeping on the couch because the kid's taken over the bed. And it's really reflects the importance when we're thinking about child mental health that, yes, we want to think about how it's impacting the child's development. But I feel like it's just as important to look at how that child's challenges are impacting the family's functioning and that a sign that a family, that a child is doing better can be that the family can get back to kind of ways of being and doing things that are to be expected, like having kids go to school and having people be able to have time to themselves and, and other things like that. So, so I think it's really when, and this is true, not just for anxiety or separation anxiety. It's really true with all of these things. When we see a child's challenge, um, in this case, we're talking about anxiety, lasting a long time, being very intense, happening most of the time, or when they're facing something that provokes anxiety, something that happens in different settings and during different activities, and anxiety or other kinds of symptoms that are really adversely affecting your child, but also may be adversely impacting your family. So there's one last thing that I didn't touch on, and I'm just debating whether we have time for it, or maybe it's a whole other thing, but for masking all day after kids maybe have not been in a situation over the summer where they've had to be in masks all day. And I think for most kids right now, the the word is that everybody's going to be masked indoors at school. Is there anything that we can do to help ease the transition from not having to be masked as much to focusing for lengthy periods of time with masks and watching teachers in masks? Or is that a whole other conversation? Well, it, it, it is a conversation, but I think there's a pretty straightforward answer, which is I think parents just need to be unemotional and, um, and just matter of fact, we need to wear masks at school, just like you have to wear shoes at school. I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, it's the new shoe. <laughs> it's just okay. the new shoe, right? You just, you know, we, we need to put our shoes on. We need to put our mask on. That's, mm-hmm. that's the way it is. And kids are just so adaptable. I mean, I have uh, talked to teachers and other people who've worked with groups of kids who are like, yeah, they're, they're doing it. It's just, you know, that's what expected and they do it. And that's why I think it's critical that we keep all the mask politics and the mask um, worry away from mm. our kids. And then Great we need point. to model it ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. I think we, when we're going out, if we need them, we just, oh, you have your mask. Great. Got it. Put it on. Got to do it. Let's just move on with our day. Wonderful. I mean, wonderful <laughs> is the wrong, maybe the wrong word given the circumstances, but that was super helpful. 
So you have a tool kit that I just wanted to quickly address in case parents have these questions and want to understand if they should be worrying about anything. Can you just quickly mention it? And I will put this back to school mental health toolkit in the show notes. Absolutely. So we've created a questionnaire that takes about five minutes. This is for parents, kids zero to 12 years old, and they answer questions in four important areas that have to um, have to do with back to school and mental health. The first is your child's emotional and social challenges, parent mental health, family stress, and then feelings about school and school challenges. So a parent fills out uh, the questionnaire and then immediately gets a personalized report back that shows you when you should, should you be worried about your kid's emotional and social development, you'll get that answer about your mental health, et cetera. And then for each of these four sections in this report, you get three things. We tell you, what does this mean? What can you do about it? And then we have activities and activity sheets of things that you can do with your child. 